Seven years is a long time, JR. And there's nothing wrong with me. I was back home in Dallas, watching Dallas with two friends. I've known Jennifer since kindergarten. Where are you going? You better stop drinking, Sue Ellen. There's nothing uglier than a woman can't handle her liquor. Yeah, like anybody would really care if someone had a drunk wife in Dallas. <laughs> this is episode 10 from the first season. It's called Black Market Baby. Okay, JR hasn't touched his wife, Sue Ellen, in like seven years, and Bobby's wife was going to have a baby five episodes ago, but then JR accidentally on purpose pushed her off the hayloft and she lost the baby. Now she might try again to get pregnant, so Sue Ellen decides if she can't have the first baby, she'll just buy one. So she goes to meet the birth mom in a bad neighborhood in Dallas, and this is why we're watching. My friend Jennifer and her brother got to be extras. Oh, there I am. That's me. We see the back of Jennifer's head. She's in a shopping cart being pushed by her brother. Totally saw Vance. Vance is like staring. Ah. Vance was seven and Jennifer was nine when this aired in 1978. Their dad worked as a key grip on the local set of Dallas. I guess I mostly I cared about the chuck wagon. There's a guy that sat in there all day long and his job was to cook whatever you wanted for the actor, for everybody on the set. Anything you wanted. As much as you wanted. And I must have ate like two pounds of bacon that day because I love bacon. And Of course, most of the time Dallas was filmed in California, but we in the Sun Belt got more out of it than just bacon. It showed us as powerful, ruthless, in charge. Our moment was beginning. Dallas foretold and glorified not just the Reagan Revolution, but all kinds of huge changes that have made America what it is now. Not that CBS was thinking about any of that when it commissioned the show. They just wanted a saga. Those were big days for TV sagas. The word saga to me meant Texas, which I had driven through once in my entire life. That's David Jacobs. The Hollywood studio Lorimar hired him to come up with a scenario. Jacobs got the Ewing name from a billboard he'd seen on that drive through Texas. He gave them a Cain and Abel story, pitting Bobby, who looks so handsome with his shirt off, as it often was, against the mean, older J.R. He, he's taken over his father's empire. He's probably multiplied its worth ten times, has more money and power than his father ever had, and yet his younger brother is still his father's favorite. And the Ewings have a Romeo and Juliet-style feud with a rival clan, the Barneses. Bobby marries a Barnes, and J.R. will never forgive him. Now, listen here, little brother. No, I won't listen. And you can stop that little brother nonsense, too, because that stops from here on in. Hold on. We'll always be brothers, J.R. But if you ever try and force me to choose, there's not a chance in a million I'd choose you or any family above my wife. David Jacobs' concept for the show had nothing to do with Dallas, Texas, till he sent it to a studio executive. He said it was fine. Uh, but I changed the name. And I said, well, what did you call it? He said, Dallas. And I said, what, what do you mean Dallas? I, I don't know that this is set in Dallas. He said, well, it, it sounded good to me. It sounded better than Houston. Poor Houston. They're the ones with the oil, and Fort Worth has the cattle. Dallas had bankers, insurance brokers, and technology geeks and they didn't wear cowboy hats. Nobody wants to be country here. That's why the people in the real country hate Dallas. Did you ever see Dallas from a BC nine at nine? Jim Schutz writes a column for the Dallas Observer called Get Off My Lawn. He came here the same year that the TV show started, when the city was more associated with JFK than JR. When I came to Dallas in 78, there was a guy at the Dallas Morning News who was still covering the assassination. 
in 78. But his job was to write about conspiracy theories, sort of enthusiastically, because Dallas was eager to discover any theory by which it was somebody else's fault. Russians, the mafia, just somebody who wasn't Dallas. Texan Jimmy Dale Gilmore picked up on that Dallas hint of menace and shame even before Hollywood did. But then Hollywood took J.R., the bad man who just didn't care what people thought, and made him the hero. It made Dallas, which was this grouchy, uh, adding machine kind of uh, actuarial city, look kind of cool and romantic. So Dallas then embraced the myth and in some ways became like the TV show. Rebranded and set free. That's the Dallas I remember. We could not build malls and skyscrapers fast enough. We could not perm our hair out big enough. We threw up subdivisions of giant houses with big chandeliers and enormous foyers. We hurled forth megaton versions of JR, H. Ross Perot, George W. Bush. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because it was so successful in that second season, CBS asked Dallas to do four additional shows. David Jacobs, the creator of Dallas. And they already had their cliffhanger. And somebody, and nobody knows whether it was Camille Marchetta, who was the story editor, or some people say it was Art Lewis, who was the producer, but somebody said, let's shoot the son of a bitch. That was the spring of 1980. By summer, Larry Hagman was on the cover of Time. The November 1980 episode of Dallas, the one that revealed JR's would-be assassin, remains the most viewed hour of television ever. More than 350 million people tuned in worldwide. The bullets hardly slowed JR down. By then, he was everywhere. He softly walks and gently talks and never leaves tracks in the land. But old JR has gone real far on the backs of his fellow man. JR! Who do you think you are? JR! You're pushing for super! It wasn't just JR that made the show popular, it was the glamorous lifestyle, the giant swimming pools. And the people who fell for it the hardest were those who didn't know any better. People like Yak Kilmi, living in drab apartment blocks behind the Iron Curtain. All these Soviet Estonian living rooms looked the same. We had the, the, the same cupboards, same sofas. Brown, of course. <laughs> what, what color do you expect a Soviet sofa to be? Kilmi grew up in Soviet Estonia. Dallas was banned, of course, but Kilmi's dad, lots of dads in Estonia, built converters to get TV signals from Finland. His mom would translate the subtitles from Finnish into Estonian every Friday night. I remember these uh, Saturday mornings or Saturday uh, nights when the last uh, episodes of Dallas were discussed over and over again. Kilmi's made a documentary film. It's about how shows like Dallas weakened the hold of communism. You know, everyone believed that uh, that's the American reality. 
people wanted to believe that uh, you know people li- live in uh, in skyscrapers and and have beautiful cars and everything is shiny and glamorous. Kilmey's not the only one who thinks this kind of dynamic made shows like Dallas into a geopolitical force. Matt Welch is the editor of the magazine Reason. We should celebrate these kind of semi-vulgar pop culture things and understand that people adapt and use them and create their own cultural artifacts that are inspired by them uh, in a way that inexorably leads towards human liberation. And that's a good thing. It's not that Dallas ended the Cold War, but Welch cites the case of Romania. The dictator Nicolae Ceausescu allowed Dallas to be shown on state TV, thinking it was a critique of American capitalism. Oops. That's Rodica Florea. I met her near the city of Slobozia. She says in the last days of Romanian socialism, they had only two hours of TV a day, and half of that was news propaganda. So Dallas was a big deal. Lady, hi, Fatita, hi, lady. Florea now manages Parcul Vacant Hermes, a hotel and ranch complex. I've heard it referred to as South Forkescue. <laughs> the stables are filled with ponies, a horse, and puppies. A local tycoon named Ily Alexandru built this place. He wanted to be the JR of Romania. He dressed in a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, the whole thing. Here, in the middle of farmland, he tried to build a replica of South Fork Ranch. He lined a long driveway with trees. He built an extra mansion in the back with an eight-car garage. Wow. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) That's huge. He was building a lot of things all at once, huh? The JR of Romania ended up in prison for a variety of financial crimes. While in jail, he told a newspaper, quote, I admire JR, but I was like Bobby. The Bobby inside me finished me. Oh, Dallas, you shine with an evil light. How'd you turn a billion steers into buildings made of mirrors? Even at the real South Fork Ranch, the one outside Dallas, people seem puzzled why the show has so much traction. I keep thinking, well, maybe no one will come next year. That's not the case. We do 11 tours a day. Adele Taylor is a tour guide here. She tells us all the tricks the TV crew and actors use to make South Fork look huge, especially the pool. You would see them dive off of the board, they would swim away, and then they swam out of the frame of the camera, so they were gone. And they were down at the other end, we thought, of that long, long pool. The pool, of course, is tiny. The long driveway, not so long. The house is smaller than a 90s McMansion. The illusion is what strikes everyone who visits here. But it's the illusion that we've bought for so long, that we, like Ewing Oil, will keep getting bigger and wealthier forever. Jim Schutz says that Dallas, Texas bought the myth and became more like the show. Just check out the new Cowboys Stadium if you want to know what he means. But it's not just Dallas, Texas. We all bought the myth. In Africa, it's Bobby. On my tour of South Fork, I met Simon Tobi. He's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now he lives here in Dallas. For him, the show is all about the American dream. Our American dream is not true, is not also false. Not true, but also not false. It depends to what you want to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, when I came in America, I didn't have money. 
You know what I'm saying? I think only $5. Dallas gave Simon the heads up that the American dream would be kind of brutal and competitive, with no one looking out for the weak. In French, that song, they say, Dallas, malheur à celui qui n'a pas compris la vie. Donc, malheur à celui qui n'a pas compris la vie. You understand? Yeah. Bad luck to he who does not understand. One day he could lose his life. Somewhere in the world right now, the original show is still airing, teaching more people about our cycles of boom and bust, our desperate housewives and scheming tycoons. But it's not broadcast in America anymore. We know the story too well. We all live in Dallas now. I'm Julia Barton.